Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, it's been a sweet day together in your presence. God, thank you for being here. Lord, I I thank you for, for your word. Lord, I thank you for the ways that it calls us to re-examine our hearts and our minds and our actions. And God, I pray that, that you would do that for us today. That you would speak to us, that you would challenge us in ways that we are living in our own strength, living according to our own plans. And God, that we would turn our attention to you and seek to respond to you in every area of our life. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. When I was growing up in elementary school, uh, there was in the back of our classroom a hamster. And the hamster had his cage. And in that cage, there was a wheel. And I sat in the back of the class and... Every once in a while, I would start to hear. And he would stop. And I'd hear it again. And the hamster would hop off the wheel, and he was in the same place that he was when he started. The hamster would work really hard. He would burn off a lot of energy. He would even make a lot of noise. But in the, in the end, the hamster was in still in the same place as he was when he started. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the people labor in vain. There are many Christians, and I confess that I am one of them all too often, who work hard for God but forget that it is the Lord who builds the house. And if it is the Lord that is building the house, then there is one important thing that we are called to be about before anything else. But in our desire to see good things happen for God, we often forget it, and it is prayer. We forget to pray. In our service to God and to the church, it's easy to slip into this mindset that if anything good is going to happen, well, it's pretty much up to us. Of course, we give lip service to prayer. Prayer is important. Prayer is a good thing. But in the end, there's work to do, right? So let's get busy doing it. And so many Christians who I think have a a sincere desire to serve God, to do many good things for God, end up living their lives in prayerless activity. Lots of hard work happening, many Bible studies attended, perhaps many sermons written and delivered, perhaps lots of poor people fed. But in the end, our hearts toward God are in the same place, or perhaps even further away. Unless the Lord builds the house, the people labor in vain. And we express our belief that the Lord builds the house by committing ourselves to prayer, 
Prayer is an expression of our dependence on God. It is an expression of this belief that if anything of eternal value is ever going to be accomplished in our physical world, then God must be in it. That he must be the leader of whatever project that is. And we can be very guilty of being the leader of our own projects and then asking God to fill in all the gaps when things aren't quite working out like we hoped that they would. Prayer is an expression of our dependence on God. And this morning we're going to look at two men, Ezra and Nehemiah, who understood that unless the Lord builds the house, that the people labor in vain. We're just going to do two things this morning. First, we're going to be looking at the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and putting it into the context of God's uh, vision and plan that we've been talking about throughout this time. And secondly, we're going to be looking at some lessons in prayer from these two men. Lessons that remind us that it is God at work first and that we need to seek him in his leading in our life. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about the restoration of Jerusalem after exile in Babylon. Last week, we talked about this story that in 586 BC, the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. They stole everything that was of value in the city, and they burned the rest of it to the ground. They left behind the sick and the vulnerable and the elderly, and they led the very best and the strongest and the brightest. They led them into exile into Babylon. And while the people of Israel were in exile, there were these two competing voices in Israel's life. Do you remember? These two competing voices. On one side, there was Babylon, Babylon, the Babylonians who were whispering in their ears, Hey, forget about Jerusalem. Forget about your God and just become like one of us Babylonians. It's pretty great here in Babylon. Forget God and join us. And on the other side, that there were these false prophets in Babylon who said to them, hey, forget Babylon. God is going to overthrow them in just a couple of years, and we're going to get to go back home to Jerusalem, forget Babylon, and only be concerned with yourself. And in contrast to these two competing voices in Israel's life, Israel receives a letter through God's prophet Jeremiah who says to them that after 70 years, 70 years, God would bring them out of exile and lead them back to Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah's letter, we looked at last week, calls the people of Israel to a unique way of life in Babylon. A people who will not become just more Babylonians, a people who will not forget God, a people who will pass on their faith to their children, but a people who will also seek the well-being, the shalom, the peace of that city of Babylon to where God had led them to. And after 70 years, God was good on his promise, as he always is. Amen? He was good on his promise. And after 70 years, another conquering nation comes through the area, the Persians. And uh, they conquer the Babylonians. And the Persian king was named King Cyrus. And we hear about something that happened in Cyrus's heart in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I would encourage you to turn with me there to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra and Nehemiah uh, were two scrolls in the Jewish Bible. They were really seen together as, as one, one book or telling one uh, individual story. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. I just want to read Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 to you. This whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with these words. 
In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And this is what, the king, what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may, may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So this begins this, this book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's all about the return out of exile from Babylon. Seventy years after they were taken there, 70 years later, they were then allowed to go back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. The book of Ezra focuses on the rebuilding of the temple itself, and the book of Nehemiah focuses on the rebuilding of the rest of the city, some of the infrastructure in the city, as well as the walls that went around the outside of the city. And this is the same temple in the same Jerusalem that stood until the time of Jesus. It is this second temple in this rebuilt city of Jerusalem that Jesus will walk into. King Herod would eventually make some improvements to the city, make some improvements to the temple, but it is this work of Ezra and Nehemiah that God calls Ezra and Nehemiah to do, to reestablish the city of Jerusalem as the central place of the worship of Israel. And we see in this story, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, that they're not only concerned about the rebuilding of the physical city of Jerusalem. We see in their stories that they know that God is about the work of reforming the hearts of the people of Israel. They've been in Babylon for 70 years. Most of the people who will be going back from Babylon to Jerusalem were even born in Babylon would have had been very influenced by the, the thought life and the religious life of the people of Babylon. And so they knew that God was concerned about the reforming of Israel's heart toward God. And so Ezra and Nehemiah both, while knowing the importance of rebuilding the physical city, the physical temple, and the, the city walls, both of them know that even more importantly, that the hearts of the people are being reformed by God that the actions of the people need to be directed toward God in, in, in obedience to him. And they know, and we see this throughout the book, they know that this work, this reforming of the hearts of the people can only happen through prayer. Unless the Lord builds the house, the people labor in vain. In Ezra and Nehemiah, they're just always praying. <laughs> they're just always praying. Sometimes they commit themselves to extended times of fasting and prayer by themselves. Other times they're leading the whole people to join together in prayer. Other times they're calling the people to, to pray and to seek God, urging them to seek him. And we even find examples in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah of them giving up the, uh, sending up those very quick, I need you right now, God, kind of prayers. <laughs> As Nehemiah stands before the king, we hear him just say, and I prayed out to God that he would give me the words to say to the king. 
Ezra and Nehemiah, they're always praying. They both believe that God has given them a task to do, that they've been called by him to do it, and they respond. They take action. They do put their minds and their hands to work, but they always do this prayerfully, always seeking God's direction, always turning their own attention and the attention of the people to God. Throughout this sermon series, we've been talking about God's mission that each of us are called to be a part of. And in the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have great examples of men who were not afraid of hard work, men who were eager to do good work for God, but who always do that work for God in a spirit of prayer, in a spirit of dependence on God, knowing that if any good eternal work is going to happen, that it's going to happen through God in his power. So as you read through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I would encourage you to do that over this week, there are dozens of insights into what it means to to pray. Uh, There are are dozens of prayers in there, and we can learn uh, much about prayer. But there are three lessons that I want to talk about today that emphasize the fact that God is already at work in the world before we ever come to prayer. That it is the Lord who is building the house. And we often come to God with our own agendas and with our own plans and with our own concerns first and ask God then to bless those. We seek to do good work for God and with God, and I want to encourage us today to be ready to respond to God and what he is saying to us and not simply come to our prayer life assuming that we know what God's plans are for us already. The critical need for the life and mission of the church is not for us to try harder in our prayer life, hoping that God will respond to us. That is not the critical need in the church. The critical need for the life and the mission of the church is that we would learn to respond to God. Just say that again. The critical need for the life and mission of the church is not for us to try harder in prayer, hoping that God will somehow respond to us. The critical need in the life of the church is that we would learn to respond to God. So the first lesson uh, of prayer in Ezra and Nehemiah that I want to talk about is, comes in the very first chapter of Ezra chapter 1, the very first verse, in fact. And the first lesson is this. God is at work in the lives of those outside people of faith. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. First chapter, first verse, God is at work in the life of Cyrus, the most powerful man in the world at that time. And the whole story of Ezra in Nehemiah is initiated by God without any of God's people ever doing a single thing. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. We think about our own mission in our own prayer life and the, the calling of evangelism that we are called to. We need to remember that God is already at work in the lives of the people that we encounter every day and that he's calling us to go to. Now, in some ways, that may be a, yeah, duh, we know that. God is at work. Of course he is. But I think that often the way that we approach people outside of the church often the way that we've been taught to do evangelism doesn't really reflect this belief that God is already at work in their life. 
Often we have this idea that in our evangelism, that it is our responsibility to bring God to people. And I think we need to think about that a little bit. We don't bring God to people. God brings us to people. And before we ever get there, before we ever enter into conversations with people about Jesus and the gospel, we can assume with great confidence that God is already at work in that person's life, that God loves them, that perhaps through another person before, perhaps through their, uh, their reflection on creation, perhaps through the nudging of the Holy Spirit, God is at work in their life. In Ezra chapter 1, we are reminded at the very beginning of this whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah that God is at work in King Cyrus's life. So how might this perspective change the way that you pray for your neighbors or change the way that you interact with them and seek to share Christ with them? As we approach our neighbors and coworkers, I've said it already, we can assume with great confidence that God is already at work in that person's life And in fact, that in that encounter, that God may want to teach you something as much as they want, he wants to teach them something about himself. And I think that those of you who volunteer at InAsMuch, one of the the great things that I love about the way that we've set up the work there, I wasn't a part of it, the way that you all have set up InAsMuch, is that it requires, it requires those who are volunteering to listen to the other person's story first. It requires that, to listen to their circumstances and to respond to them in their particular situation in their life at that moment. I know, I've heard from you, sometimes listening to those stories is a challenge, sometimes it is frustrating, but it's important. I think that many of the models of evangelism that we've been given often make the gospel into a canned presentation that does not honor the individual person that's sitting right in front of us. Those tools are certainly useful. They can give us words and language to help us share truths about Jesus. But the truth is, people in our culture are tired of being sold stuff. And they can smell a sales pitch from a mile away. I think one of the things that we are going to need to do if we're going to do evangelism well is to learn to listen to other people and to discern how God is at work in their lives and to speak the truth of the gospel into their life at that moment. To speak specific words of grace into those specific places in their lives where they have condemned themselves. To speak truth into the particular lies that they believe about themselves and about God. To listen to their story enough to know what we should say. What good news does this person need to hear right now? I think we need to learn to listen, to go with a posture of listening to those around us first, and then ask God, how then should I speak to this person? What do they need to hear about the good news of Jesus today? I think that will change people's response to the gospel. They won't hear it as a sales pitch. They'll hear it as a person who has a deep concern for their particular life. I think that's really important. It is God who builds the house or the workers labor in vain. It is God who is already at work in the lives of those that he is calling us to go to, which means it's our responsibility to listen to others, 
listen to the ways that God is at work in their lives and be ready to speak the gospel into their unique situation. Secondly, when God builds the house, he leads his own people to repentance. Over and over again in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, the leaders are constantly repenting. They are naming their sin, bringing it to God, and asking God for mercy. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses from Nehemiah's prayer at the very beginning of this chapter. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Just a little bit of context here. Uh, Nehemiah sends some friends out. He says, hey, go and check out what's going on in Jerusalem. I want to know what's happening there. Uh, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, held an important position in the uh, the kingdom, kind of like Daniel and his friends did. Here's Nehemiah as in an important and influential, influential role in the kingdom of Persia. But he's very concerned about what's going on in Jerusalem. His heart, his heart is still directed to God's purposes in Jerusalem. And so uh, some men come back and they give him a report. And he hears that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. The city is still in disgrace. Um, even though the temple has been, um, uh, has been built up, that the city is still in, in, terrible, uh, in a terrible place. And so Nehemiah begins to pray. Chapter 4, he says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And then he repents. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. If God is going to do a good work through us here at Broadway, and I believe that he is doing it and that he's going to do it, but all the while, he wants to be doing a good work in our own hearts as well. He wants to do a good work in our own hearts as well. And so after this season of prayer where where Nehemiah is praying and fasting for days, night and day praying, God leads him to a place of repentance. If you were here at the 40th anniversary celebration, you will remember a story that Pastor Bob told to us about some of the early days at Broadway. One of the the leaders of their church, one of the key leaders of their church, I believe he was the the leader of their Sunday school program, he came forward and confessed to Pastor Bob and to the whole congregation that he was a closet alcoholic. And his confession that day opened the door for the church to come around him and to walk with him into sobriety. He was not condemned for his sin. He was met with grace. This opened the door to let people come around him and and other people then began to come forward and to confess and to repent their own sin knowing that they would be met with grace here at Broadway. And I have seen that spirit continue here 40 years later. There is a real recognition here at Broadway that we are all broken people in need of grace. And if there is a repentance and a desire to change, there will always be grace here. 
always. I don't think that there is a sin unrepresented in this body. I don't think that there is. I continue to hear stories of people, the way that God has changed people in their past. It's incredible. If God is going to do a good work through us here at Broadway, he is going to lead us to be people of repentance. He is going to show and shine his light onto our own hearts, perhaps revealing to us things that we do not know are even there, and also giving us the courage to reveal our hearts to other people and to shine a light onto our own hearts and say, I need to share this with you. I need to repent from this thing, and I need your help to walk with me into holiness and righteousness. God is not only concerned about making his kingdom come and his will be done out there. He's concerned about it happening in here. He is concerned about it happening in here, and the work of renewal, the renewal that he does, uh, is always a heart job as well as it is anything else. Repentance. He will be calling us to it as we seek him in prayer. Third, when God builds the house, he calls people and he equips them for the task that he gives to them. Ezra and Nehemiah find themselves in a unique place in the story of God. They have the opportunity to be a part of God fulfilling the words that he promised to Israel to bring them back to Jerusalem. God has a purpose in their life, and he knew that. God has a purpose in your life as well, and it's all under God's sovereign plan and control. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I wasn't planning to go here, but I think that this is an amazing, amazing word to us. We know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And we often stop our Sunday school memorization at that verse. Big mistake. (laughs) Big mistake. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It seems to me that God thought that your work to do in the kingdom was so important that he thought about it in advance. Perhaps maybe even before the foundations of the world. That God prepared a good work for you to do far in advance. And I'm coming to believe that one of the great... uh, roles as followers of Christ that we have. And and one of the great purposes of prayer is to listen and to ask God, what are you calling me to do? To pay attention to the gifts that God has given to you. God has given you unique eyes to see the world, has given you a heart that grieves at things that don't necessarily grieve me, but that grieve you. And so that you, as a part of the body of Christ, say, this is where God is calling me to be a part of. We serve the God who called Ezra and Nehemiah. And we serve the God who moves the hearts of King Cyrus and King Artaxerxes and of Zerubbabel and of Ezra and Nehemiah who moves their hearts to bring about his purposes in the world. And we serve the same God today, the God who rules over your heart, who has given you certain abilities and spiritual gifts, has given you certain eyes to see the hurt in the people around you, 
And God desires you to be a part of this work in the world. And it's part of our work in prayer to listen to God and to pay attention to what he is doing in the lives of people around us, to help us to see the hurt and to see how our gifts and our calling can meet people where they are. Broadway, we are called as a church to the important work of prayer. When we commit ourselves to prayer, we confess that we know that the church is more than just another human project trying to make the world a little bit better. I think so often the prayerlessness of our churches is a reflection of our belief that the church is primarily a human project that must be created and sustained and sent by our own powers and our strength rather than in the power and strength of the Lord God. The church is not a human project that uses God to accomplish human purposes. It's the reverse, isn't it? It is a divine project that uses humans for divine purposes. And that is a great gift. That is a great gift to us. That we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God in his divine plan prepared in advance for you and I to do. Unless the Lord builds the house, the people labor in vain. And the act of prayer is the confession to ourselves and to God that we are completely dependent on him and that if anything eternally good is going to happen, it's going to happen by his power and by his spirit. We recently finished with 40 days of prayer for our city. I want to thank those of you who intentionally sought God in prayer for our city over these last 40 days. In the future, I and your leadership will be continuing to call you to be a people of prayer for our city and for our world, entering into different seasons where we're praying for different things. And I encourage you to participate, all of us, to engage and participate in what and uh, how he wants us to pray. God forget, forbid, God forbid that our work here at Broadway ever becomes prayerless activity. But instead, will be activity motivated and fueled by prayer. And I give you permission, O oh little flock, that if your shepherd ever seems to be walking in a spirit of self-dependence, which I often do, I give you my permission to come and speak with me about that. And I promise to do the same for you. God, we give you thanks for the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and the example that these men gave to us as men of prayer who trained their eyes to see where you were at work, who trained their ears to hear you and to respond to what you say. God, I pray that we would be these kinds of people here at Broadway. And I pray these things in Jesus' name and in the power of his spirit. Amen.